We're going to uh, get to, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, Exodus 20, verse 13. Tonight, uh, because we're walking through John 6, and we're at a, a place in John 6, we're about ready to cross this bridge of election, the Father drawing. We kind of hinted at it this morning. I want us to walk through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, uh, to kind of get a lay of the land of, of election. What we're going to see here in this passage are what I would call encouraging signs or encouraging evidences that we are among God's elect, which is what Paul's dealing with here in this passage very explicitly, actually. And we're going to see several signs, and I want to walk through this passage as an encouragement. There are a lot of believers who spend a lot of years in unfruitful living, and I'm not saying this sinfully so, but unfruitful living in the sense that they are plagued by whether or not they are elect. They wonder, they lack assurance of salvation, and they're, they're just assaulted by Satan uh, because they, they're, they're always wondering, am I really among God's chosen people? How can I know? And thankfully, in the midst of this difficult doctrine of election, the Lord knows how frail we are as creatures, and He actually gives us evidences or, or ways we can tell. So we don't have to live our lives in fear or wondering uh, because none of us can see into the Lamb's book of life, but we can simply look at our lives and ask, is any of this the case with me? So uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 10. And uh, before we read it and look at it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us, um, I guess what we'd call a doctrine and a teaching, which for your church has always been something hard to wrap our minds around. How you have decreed, and elected us before the foundations of the world, and yet you command us to believe in your Son and come to you. In our minds, logically, these things can't be joined together, and your Word teaches both of them. And so we admit from the outset that this doctrine to us is oftentimes confusing, and, and pastorally for us, uh, heart-wise, it also can throw us into spiritual difficulties. And so we ask that as we walk through this, we would be encouraged by your Spirit, to see what your word teaches, and to see how you bring us comfort in the midst of this difficult doctrine. We pray that you'll walk with us then by your Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll pick up, we'll just start at verse 1 and then read down through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives tonight. So brothers and sisters at Hope and everyone listening uh, this evening, 
this doctrine of election uh, can be used to instill a lot of pride in people who are uh, believers, wrongfully so, but it can also be used to grant great comfort and great humility uh, to those who are believers, which is what it uh, should be used to engender in each of us. Some people say that election is a horrendous doctrine which portrays God as creating people for the purpose of sending them to hell, but that's not what, actually what the Bible uh, teaches. Uh, years ago, 1860, John Lilly, pastor of the First Presbyterian uh, Church in Kingston, New York, said this, there are multitudes more of professing Christians even who have been told by their teachers that election is a cruel, frightful theological monster got up lately by Calvin and ever since followed only by a gloomy, wandering crowd of Presbyterians of the stricter sort. <laughs> uh, it's gotten a bad rap. Uh, maybe some of it has gotten a bad rap on account of the way that those who believe the doctrine have handled themselves in the midst of it. Uh, but uh, you can also it can also get a bad rap just because it's a difficult thing to swallow. And if you really look at what God's doing in election, uh, it can be a very difficult doctrine to swallow and to navigate and to figure out for our own spiritual lives. So I don't want to undermine that at all, thinking this is something simplistic that we can uh, solve. The Apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven. He saw tremendous things. After he came down, he was given this thorn in the flesh. He asked three times, would go away. The Lord said, no, <laughs> I'm keeping you humble. But one of the things that we know Paul did not see was the book of life. It's not been opened other than the Lamb will open it. Yet Paul can say, interestingly, in this passage and also in Philippians uh, chapter, I think is it four or three, uh, that he's, he knows that these Thessalonians are chosen by God and that there were others in the church at Philippi whose names are written in the book of life. Now, how can he say this? Because Paul has not seen the book of life. Paul is not God. He can't search hearts and know hearts like the Lord can. How can he say this? And he can say this because what, what happens when we are chosen by God for salvation and we come to Christ is that our lives give evidence. Um, I think I've mentioned it before you, uh, the illustration given by Paul Washer, who talks about someone who uh, has been hit by a Mack truck. That's what it's like to be saved. If someone walked into church five minutes late and said, I was changing my tire and got hit by a Mack truck, um, bowled me over, made mincemeat of me, and they're standing and right in front of you <laughs> reporting this, you'd, you'd say you've not been hit by a Mack truck. <laughs> but if somebody uh, is in the hospital barely conscious saying I get hit by a Mack truck, you'd believe them. In other words, when the Holy Spirit shows up, there will be a radical change in our lives, like getting hit by a Mack truck. Life will never be the same. Our lives will look different, we'll think different, etc. So when we've been selected by God to come to salvation purely by His mercy, nothing we did, and we could have just as easily been unselected. But when we've been chosen by God to come to faith, and at the moment we do come to faith, there will be evidences. And I want to walk through several of those. Uh, the first three are actually found in verse 3. We're going to kind of combine them. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling them what he's been praying about for them. And he says, look, when I was among you, I saw your faith working. I've heard about it as well, <laughs> given the reports. I saw your love laboring and your hope enduring. So let me just peel this apart slightly. When someone comes to faith, they, they claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy enough to simply say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. I believe that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that he's the judge of all the earth. I believe that he's the Son of God, etc. It's easy enough to say that. 
But James argues, and what Paul's talking about here is that faith will always issue forth into work. Faith will get to work. Uh, faith, uh, genuine belief in the Lord Jesus Christ will issue forth into uh, basically plowing ahead uh, and serving the Lord and doing uh, his commandments and obeying him. So Paul's saying, I've seen that. I remember that in prayer. I, I tell the Lord, I'm thankful to the Lord that their faith worked. The other thing he's thankful for regarding prayer is their, their love labored, or it's a labor of love. He saw them do this when he was among them. The word for labor is actually hard work or strenuous effort is the emphasis of that word. And this labor is born out of love. It's a labor of love. So this hard, strenuous effort is motivated by love. So what Paul's getting at is it's one thing to labor and do strenuous work, claiming to do it for the Lord and maybe doing it for the Lord, but motivated by selfish reasons, maybe by self-righteousness, maybe by frustration or anger, whatever the case may be. It's quite another thing to actually pour yourself out in strenuous labor, serving the Lord in the midst of our work and callings and serving other people in the midst of our lives, motivated by love. So Paul's saying, look, I saw this. This is one of the ways you can know that you're a born-again Christian is the reason you're working so hard isn't in order to try and prove yourself or make much of yourself, but it's out of love for God and love for your neighbor. So that's a sign that we are among God's elect. And then the third thing, just quickly here on this first point, is that their hope endured, or he saw their endurance of hope. And the word endurance means to remain under, uh, to remain under the challenge. It means when difficulty comes, uh, it means to, to remain under that difficulty, or in this context, regarding hope. When hope is yet something a long way off, you continue to remain under it. You continue to bear with it and be patient and say, hope my hope isn't here yet, but I'm not gonna change my hopes. I'm gonna stay put here and keep hoping in the same things. So they were not like pliable in Pilgrim's Progress who was all excited about heaven, right? The celestial city. Hey, Christian, I'm ready to go, let's roll. They come to the slew of the spawn and a little bit of difficulty and pliable says, I'm out of here. <laughs> he did not remain under the hope. He said, my hope is gone, I'm out of here. So Paul saw that after the Thessalonians converted, he was only in their midst for about three weeks, by the way. He saw them turn to God from idols, undergo tremendous difficulty and persecution, and have hope in heaven. And when persecution hit, their hope did not fade, but their hope endured. So again, uh, 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 hope uh, for heaven and for what God has guaranteed us in the future is an evidence of election. Uh, the second thing I want us to notice, or maybe the fourth, uh, but the second point is, how they receive the gospel and how we receive the gospel is an evidence of our uh, salvation or election. Verse five, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now notice Paul here says our gospel. Now, this is not his gospel that he made up. Elsewhere he calls it God's gospel. But he's saying this is the gospel that I proclaim. This is the gospel that me and the others with me, uh, Sylvanus, Timothy, etc. This is the gospel that we preached when we were among you, and uh, uh, it's the one that we proclaimed. He says they received it not only in word. Now just pause for a moment. They received it at least in word. So when the gospel comes to people, I know this is like preaching to the choir. We already know this, uh, but when the gospel comes to us, it comes to us via spoken word. Maybe through sermons. Maybe through 
Sunday school classes, for a lot of us just through our parents, through our friends, just any means by which we first heard of this, hey, I've got some incredible news for you. Uh, we were dead in sin. God provided a savior. He went to the cross, died in place of sinners. And all you got to do is believe in Jesus and be saved. When that gospel comes to us, it comes to us largely through our hearing. So it comes to us in word and it comes to us in a spoken manner. It didn't come with you know, man-made elegance. Paul is just saying, hey, it came to you in a word when I was in your midst. But he says it not only came to you in word, but it came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I want to peel that apart a little bit. When Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, the gospel he proclaimed had a powerful effect on the hearers. The gospel proclaims the power of God, but actually the gospel is the power of God. If you look at Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So when the gospel comes, it comes in power. And it's, it's almost like if you want to use the analogy of a tornado, and don't take this too far, but when a tornado comes through a town or a city, it comes with power that can't be controlled, that can't be harangued, or you know, nobody says, hey, we're going to build this huge concrete wall and redirect the tornado. <laughs> it just comes and does its thing. And after a tornado comes through a town with all the devastation, it leaves things, turns upside down if the, if the funnel cloud comes down and wreaks its havoc. When the gospel comes, beloved, it just comes with a power. There's power embedded in it that the Holy Spirit brings to the hearts and lives of people. And Paul says, when I was in your midst for three weeks, I saw lives turned upside down. It came in power, not in weakness, but it had a powerful effect on the lives of those who heard it. And, you know, there's a, sometimes people hear the good news and it changes a little bit of their lives. But after a while, they return back to their former life and it really doesn't have much of an effect. Paul's saying, among the Thessalonians, that's not what happened. It came in power and turned their lives upside down uh, forever. It also came in the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that the gospel can come to a person with undeniable and unforsakable uh, power is because the power is driven by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit shows up to work in our hearts, something interesting happens. I don't know if you've ever had this before, but someone may be sitting on a chair next to you giving you the gospel, uh, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time, a friend is doing this or whatever our conversion stories are. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up and sort of pins you to your chair or to wherever you're standing. <laughs> and you think, this person, it do they have a camera in my house? Like, do they know my heart? Like, is there a monitor inside my soul that they've been looking at and reading? Because it seems like this message that they're talking about is sorting through my whole life. Like somebody knows me more than they should or more than I wish they would. And what that is, is actually nothing regarding the person giving the gospel. They don't know you any better likely than the, next, than the person next to you. It's the Holy Spirit showing up and doing His work. He knows everything. Remember, God's the searcher of hearts. God knows the mind of the Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit shows up, He knows everything about the internal workings of our soul and our heart. And when He shows up, like He showed up in the Thessalonian church, it, He shows up in power and He shows up with full knowledge and, and knows exactly how to work in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit shows up to give us new hearts, that's when we know and can be assured 
that uh, we are uh, indeed genuinely saved. And then finally, with full conviction. So when they heard the gospel message preached by Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they were just fully convinced of the truth uh, of uh, the gospel. They, they said, look, uh, this is not dealing with their assurance of salvation necessarily because they're right at the beginning. This is just, hey, I'm all in. I hear this news about a risen Savior, about one who uh, conquered he who had power over death. I've heard this great news. I hear what he did for sinners, how he lived and died and rose again. I'm in. There's no other God like this. All the Thessalonian gods that we have here, all the, they're just weak. We made them. We've invented them. They're just pieces of wood, pieces of silver in front of us. Uh, the God you're telling me about is just so unlike all these other gods. I'm in. So they were fully convinced that, hey, I don't necessarily know everything about this God. I probably never will, but I'm in, I believe, and, and sign me up for the rest of my life and unto eternity I will serve uh, this God. Let me ask each of us here, uh, not for whether or not you've had some sort of out-of-body Christian experience, but has the Word of God ever spoken to your heart? That's it. Very simple. Has the Holy Spirit ever used the Word of God, whether through your own Bible study at home, maybe your family devotions, I don't know what that looks like in everyone's life, uh, maybe in a uh, just talking with friends over fellowship, and they get to know you and they mention some Bible passages or whatever. Has the Holy Spirit ever used any of that to walk into your heart and soul and kind of stir up the waters, make tons of waves, flip you upside down and say, time to get going on a different life. Because if that's how the word of God has come into your life, again, that's an evidence that, yep, God has worked to my heart. He's chosen me to be saved and I can be encouraged by his work in my life. The next thing I'd like us to notice uh, regarding a evidence of God's electing love in our lives is that we joyfully follow Christ no matter the cost, verses 5b and 6. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I want to focus on, particularly right here, on you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they became imitators of the Apostle Paul. They became imitators of the Lord. And they received this word. They believed in Jesus Christ, but affliction hit. Now they're in a, in a congregation where there's Jews and, and some Gentiles as well. And life became very difficult. The townsfolk were not necessarily pleased with them and with their conversion. And so a lot of persecution and difficulty uh, hit in their lives. And what, what we're told is that they received this with joy. They joyfully handled the affliction uh, they received the word in spite of the affliction uh, that this same receiving of the word would cost them. Now this, this may be something of a foreign concept to us a little bit, but for most of us, I'm guessing, we can see how this works itself out in our lives, at least to some extent. When we trust in Jesus Christ, there will be difficulties inherent in believing in him. The difficulties of denying self, the difficulties of reordering our priorities, because to go from living in the kingdom of darkness where we, where we establish our own priorities and where we're God, to the kingdom of light, where God establishes our priorities and he's on the throne, is going to involve a lot of difficulty, a lot of hardship. For the Thessalonians, it looked like outright persecution and, and relational difficulty. For us, it could entail that indeed, but it can also entail other things as well. 
And in the midst of that, they had joy. Joy, not like, I've got to figure out how to paint a smile on my face. I've got to look in the mirror and figure out what a, what a smile in the midst of a frowning soul looks like and how I can configure that with some facial muscles. But joy that's produced, check it out in the passage, by the Holy Spirit. Joy of the Holy Spirit. So thank Holy Spirit working this fruit out in their lives. So when people genuinely come to Christ, they go through trials with joy, maybe with tears in their eyes. Doesn't mean we don't weep. In fact, we're called to weep with those who weep. But in the midst of the worst trials and difficulties, there can still be joy. And it's interesting how trials work. Uh, I'm not saying, I, I don't think I've undergone tremendous trials like a lot of Christians have. One thing as I've read about various Christians and biographies going through trials is the Lord gives them an overwhelming sense of, don't worry, there's more than just this life. And they perceive that and grasp that more than most of us do as we go through life where there's not a lot of trials. And so God gives grace, the Holy Spirit gives grace to handle trials with much joy because when affliction hits and difficulty hits, the first thing that we start wondering is, is this all there is to life? Why am I even alive? Is this life worth living? And the Holy Spirit takes that and says, guess what? There's more to come. You can be satisfied in this life. You don't have to uh, despair. So God's elect suffer with joy. By the way, those who are lost, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, maybe they will tomorrow, when suffering and difficulty and hardship hits, it's going to be impossible to approach that with joy because in their mind, this life is all there is. And if this life is filled with suffering and sorrow, then there's no hope and without hope, there is no joy. So Christians as a great witness to the world, one of the best, strongest witnesses for a watching world is Christians going through the fire. I mean, just having their life handed to them on a really difficult plate and yet they have this joy because others are going to look at that and say, have you lost your mind? What, what sort of pills are you taking? How, where do you get this from? You can say, look, this is the Holy Spirit. I'm living for another kingdom. God's done this in my life. It's a great and powerful witness to the world around us. That was what the Thessalonians had. And we'll look in just a moment. Everybody was talking about it and spreading this word uh, concerning it. So that's an evidence that we are uh, genuinely uh, saved. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that God calls us, that one of the evidences of being saved by this God is joy and suffering because we see it in Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. When Jesus Christ came down here, walking through suffering that you and I will never ever have to partake of, he didn't do it begrudgingly. I guess I just got to swallow all of this I guess I'm down here with you miserable people. I may as well make the best of it. No, it's actually my food to do my Father's will, food that you disciples can't even see. Actually, I have came down here to lay down my life. No, it wasn't easy. Garden of Gethsemane, this is borne out. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But the Lord Jesus Christ is willing to do this. He wanted to do this. He's down here filled with joy and delight to do His Father's will. So it's no surprise that the same God who calls us to himself and makes us like his son says, hey, when you suffer, one of the evidences of being mine is that you'll be able to suffer with joy. 
Now, you might be crying, but internally, you've got this joy that like a beach ball in water just keeps popping up and is going to keep you above the surface. And so that you can remember always, this life may be a total car crash. I may make a total hash of this life, but there is a life that is to come. And and I'm looking forward to to that. Uh, The next evidence that these were people chosen by God is they become they became an example to uh, other believers. So verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now the word example is the word for type. It's literally imitation or a sort of imprint. So they were imitating Paul, they were imitating the Lord, and the ones who were imitating became imitated. Interesting, just a little bit of a portrait. What is fascinating that many people point out, and I think is just a testimony of the work of God, they were doing this in the complete absence of any leadership. Paul had been among these former pagans for three weeks. That's it. Three Sabbath days, and he was gone down the road. And what springs up out of this is this thriving church that has joy amidst persecution where nobody's even teaching them about this stuff. Nobody's there to show them how to walk through it. They're reading the word of God. They saw Paul's life and they said, we've, saw, we've seen Paul go through a lot. We've heard his stories. This is what we're called to go through as well. In the midst of the total absence of leadership, these believers are imitating Paul and the Lord Jesus and becoming an example for other believers to follow. Again, Paul's like, I, I know that God has chosen you for salvation because of how you've been living. You're imitating us, our faith. You're imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. And other people are starting to follow your walk as well. The, the next evidence is that they echoed the word of God in verse eight, or sounded forth the word of God. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, so just pause there. The word of God sounded forth. Now at the root, it's an interesting word, this word translated sounded forth. At the root of this word is the Greek word, akeo or akeo, from which we get the word echo in English and also Latin. And sandwiched to the front end of this word is the word which means out from or source. So Paul's saying the word of the Lord has echoed out from among you. And this word is also used in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I am a noisy gong. I remember a gong makes no noise unless somebody bangs it. You have to beat the gong and then sound reverberates or echoes out from it. And so uh, what Paul seems to be saying here is this. The Thessalonians were hit, as it were, with the word of God. And the result was that the word of the Lord echoed out from them and just kept echoing in Macedonia and Achaia, which are regions to the north and to the south. The word just kind of went everywhere. But it began with the Lord showing up and banging them as it were, or causing them to make this sound by drawing them to himself. So the Thessalonians, after the Lord had worked in their life, were not a sheepish people. They were bold. They weren't saying, hey, we've got to kind of hide our witness. We're afraid of what the world might do to us. Uh, Now that we're saved, they had basically the same attitude Paul did. Well, look, uh, we're going to be resurrected. I'm sure Paul taught them all about that. And uh, we've got a life that is to come. So in the here and now, I don't really care what men do to me. 
I've got this great gospel. It's rattled my heart and soul around and it's sounded forth inside of me and I'm, I'm just going to sound it out as well to everybody that I meet. I'm going to talk to them. It's going to be part of who I am and part of my living. And so Paul says one of the evidences that, that we're chosen by God for salvation and that we've come to Christ genuinely is that the word of God which has entered into our lives just spills right out, just overflows, just part of who we are as we live and we spread that word. A couple more, and then we're, we're done. Uh, another evidence is that they turn to God from idols, verse 9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So when a city filled with idols, these brand new believers abandon their idols, which means a complete abandoning of a lifestyle, almost a complete abandoning of friendships. Not that they would turn their backs on their friends, but their former friends would turn their backs on them. And it's a reorientating of almost all of your relationships in a different way. Every relationship is going to be different now because the people that you used to worship your idols with are now looking at you with skepticism. Now you actually love them really and truly for the first time and you want them to know Jesus and turn from the idols as well to serve the living and true God. So a whole lifestyle has changed. Their, their, their lives are just being turned upside down and they turned from those idols to God and not just to God in general, but to serve the living and true God. When someone comes to faith in Christ, the relationship with God is a manifold one. We're now sons and daughters of His. We're now co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted. We're justified, made righteous. We've got a future. But the Bible also uses extensive language regarding slavery to God, which is just the word for slave, a doulos. And so Paul said, I know that you're chosen by God, that you're genuinely saved. Because when you turn from idols, you didn't just say, I'll try God out. I'll take Jesus as Savior, but I'm still going to live however I want. They turned to God and said, Lord, you're my master. Of course, you're my Savior, but you're also my master. I'm your slave. I don't do whatever I want now. I don't even want to do whatever I want now. I'm yours. Put me in. Put me in wherever you want me to be. It's a short life. I know I'm going to be in heaven with you forever. So whatever you want me to do, I'll do joyfully. That's how the Thessalonians turned to God, to be his slaves. And then finally, they waited patiently for Jesus' second coming. Verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Where true conversion exists, uh, there is a strong desire to see Jesus and to long for him to come from heaven. So a sign that we are elect is that we realize this world is not all there is, and we're actually waiting for another world to come. We're waiting for Jesus to come into this world. So in the lives of believers, there's a genuine patience. There's a patience with God's providence in our lives. There's a patience when our lives don't go as we want, because we're not waiting for this life to turn out to be all that we want it to be, even though probably most of us have hopes and dreams for this life, all of which are good. But we realize as we walk through this life, the biggest thing we're waiting for isn't some future glory in this life where everything will be perfect and we can quit our jobs or we'll have the perfect family or our health will be exactly where we want it to be. The biggest thing we're waiting for is Jesus to come. We're just waiting for him to come from heaven. We're in the waiting mode. God saved us. 
and we're, we're hurrying up, meaning we're busy, we're working for him, we're hurrying up and waiting. That's the mode that every believer is in. And Paul saw that in the Thessalonians, that they were waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the evidences that we're genuinely born again is that we understand that there's a kingdom that's not of this world that's yet to come and Jesus will come and he'll, he'll finish that and complete that and bring it all to pass. And we're waiting for that day to come. And I want to close by looking at this. Why is election so important? Why is it so important that God has chosen us, that we find out? Uh, we can never find out if he has, we can have assurance of our salvation. But why is it so important that we figure out whether or not we are genuinely saved? Because of this, if you look at verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of God, the wrath to come. So the wrath of God is coming. And in this context, Paul talks about the wrath of God in the midst of helping the Thessalonians figure out if they're really genuinely saved and encouraging them that they are. When this wrath comes, it's going to be an absolute storm. It'll be an overwhelming, awful, awesome, terrible day. And for everyone who's a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. And it, the, the language deliver, that word delivers, actually means to draw to oneself. It's to pull to oneself or to deliver to oneself. So it, there's almost a picture going on here. Here's the picture. The wrath of God is going to come at the end of the day against all of creation. And when God's wrath comes, there will either be us standing all by ourselves in the midst of the wrath, having to handle it personally from God, and it will eternally destroy us. Or if we genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus will be delivering us from the wrath to come, as it were, by hiding us in his finished work, protecting us, drawing us to himself in the midst of this day that is just filled with terror and awesomeness when God's mercy is displayed, but also his full justice, undiluted, being poured out against all who don't know him. So when regarding the wrath that is to come, Jesus delivers us from that. How does he deliver us from it? He walked through it for us. Jesus has already seen what that day is going to look like in the future on the cross. He saw a glimpse of it. He saw it in its fullness as it was directed toward every single believer. He saw it in all of its fullness. He paid what every believer should have paid for. He stood there and took it. All the God-forsakenness, all of God's just anger and wrath, no mercy, poured out. And Jesus says, as it were, on the last day, when God's wrath is poured out, I will be delivering you. You will be inside of me. You'll be counted with my righteousness. My blood will spill over you. You will be protected. For everyone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will face the wrath of God on their own. I'd argue it's the most sobering thought in all the Bible because this wrath that is to come never ends. There's no, there's no end to it. After 10 million years of it, there's not even, you won't even call that a warm-up. It's hard for us to fathom all of this. So all the more, the most important thing for every single human being, all of us as born-again Christians genuinely to consider as well is, do I really believe? Am I really a child of God? Is Jesus someone I've latched onto? Has God worked powerfully in my heart? Or is my deceitful heart, which our hearts are deceitful, actually been deceiving me? 
and I need to repent and believe in Jesus. So beloved, I hope that as Christians, we can be encouraged and see evidences of what Paul's talking about in our lives so that we can go to bed tonight and every night after thinking, you know, God, my life isn't what I want it to be. I've still got a lot of sins that I want to be peeled off and I've got a lot of Christ I want to put on. And, and there's a lot of things I want changed, but I know you've worked in my heart and life. I know these are my loves and my affections. I know these are my desires. I love you and I believe. Thank you for telling me what it looks like to believe in you so that I can have assurance of salvation. Let's pray.